church, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. I want to take this time to uh, quickly remind you of what I first announced last week. We have a Bible reading guide available in our Welcome Center, and I'm encouraging all of you uh, to join us in committing to reading the Bible through uh, for this year, uh, 2023. We just read the Bible through collectively, uh, but I want us to commit to reading the Bible through individually. And the reading guide that I've provided for us out in our Welcome Center is semi-chronological. So it follows the storyline of Scripture. And this morning, that uh, pertains particularly to what we're looking at this morning, because I think when we look at the storyline of Scripture, we gain a greater understanding for God's actions, His purposes, uh, his, His words, all that He does throughout all of Scripture. And so when we see Scripture as one redemptive story, it helps us have a greater understanding for what the importance of Christ's coming means and meant for those people and what it means for us, and then how we as the people of God have been brought near to Christ and in Christ to be before the face of God and to be welcomed as children of God. And we gain that greater understanding, that greater context when we look at Scripture as it's one complete story that leads and points to Christ. And the thing which I want us to do some internal analysis on this morning. So that's kind of looking introspectively, looking within ourselves, kind of thinking about uh, our definition and our understanding of one thing, and that is Christian missions. So what, what comes to mind when you hear that word missions, right? Because you'll probably, we could probably take a survey and we'd get multiple different answers uh, that maybe some of them would overlap with one another, maybe some of them would go hand in hand with one another, but we'd probably get a lot of different understandings of what missions is, uh, how it's defined according to Scripture, and we just there's this conglomeration. It's always one of those things that we know we're supposed to do, we know Scripture calls us to do it, but we don't have that firm biblical grasp, at least from the entirety of God's Word, of what Christian missions is and what the purpose of it is and, and, and how it is joining in God's redemptive purpose. I'm kind of getting my head ahead of myself here. So when we hear the word missions, it can take our minds to many different places, right? Some people hear missions and they might immediately think of a foreign country, maybe some exotic country or a closed country, uh, just really kind of this romanticized version of missions that's real extravagant and, and just uh, kind of... Uh, just secretive and all of these things, sharing the gospel through a translator, uh, having to be hide your actions from the government of that country. That's, that's what a lot of people think of when they hear missions, right? Some people hear missions and uh, they have maybe somewhat of a negative reaction, right? This type of person will say missions, like I can go on a mission trip to my neighbor's house, so why do I need to go spend money in a foreign country or spend all that money to go across our country when I've got this obligation here? Or 
even some people in this kind of mindset, I've heard one of the most ignorant statements I've heard on this subject is, can't their own people witness to them in reference to, to foreign and international missions, right? And so the problem exists here in a couple of ways. First, in how we've co-opted the word missions, right, in the, in the context in which we use that word and how we go about describing it and using it to describe certain actions, so we, it, it's often been boiled down or co-opted to mean a trip that we take or a date on a calendar uh, or an, just an action, just something that we do here and there. Another problem there is that foreign missions and national missions and local missions are not mutually exclusive. And this is another problem is that we, we hear missions and we think of those things that we do when we go somewhere and we separate that from what we do here. We refer, sometimes we'll refer to that as service or benevolence or, or different, we'll use different words to describe what we do here and we'll use different words to describe what we do there, right? And so there's, there's some of the problems in, in our misunderstandings of the term missions, right? And way too often... Another issue is that way too often our understanding of Christian missions extends no further than the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, uh, that's not in any way, please don't take that as me in any way trying to uh, negate the Great Commission or or make it uh, subservient in any way. But when we look at the entirety of Scripture, we see and have a greater understanding of the importance of Great Commission when we see it as part of what God has been doing from the fall. And that's what we're seeing this morning. That's what I want us to see over the next four weeks is taking a look at God's redemptive purpose as revealed throughout all of Scripture so that we see that missions wasn't something that was invented in the New Testament, but it's when what God has been doing from the fall. All right, so I'll invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from Genesis chapter 17 verses 1 through 9 is our text. This morning. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, humbled uh, after a week which was filled with your word, I pray that that would provide us an even greater understanding of your storyline of Scripture, which points us to you, Christ. 
Father, we pray that as we read your word now, as we exposit your word, as we unpack your word, that you would help us to see your redemptive purpose as revealed throughout all of Scripture. Help us to see that missions is not something that was invented in the New Testament but it has been your work from the beginning that you call us to join in with you, that you redeem us for that purpose. So then help us as a church respond accordingly and obediently to that, to join in your redemptive purposes as you have called us to, to make your name known among the nations. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So our text this morning, which we just read, this is the the confirmation of God's covenant with Abraham. So if you'll remember back uh, roughly a year ago, we would have been looking through the book of Genesis together and uh, in looking at the God's calling of Abraham and his covenant with Abraham, it kind of takes place in, in three portions. You know, you got Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and here Genesis 17, which is really the, the confirmation of the covenant. So you have Abraham's call or Abram's call in Genesis 12, where he's initially called to leave his, uh, he pronounces his covenant. And at that pronouncement, he makes known to Abram what he is doing and what he's getting ready to do to make himself glorified in all the world through Abram. And God pronounces that in chapter 12. And so at this initial pronouncement, uh, God uh, tells Abram that uh, his eternal purpose in calling Abram and to leave his country, leave his kindred in pursuit of this call, right? And so he's telling him, I'm getting ready to do a great thing and I need you to get up and go, right? That's kind of the the Blake standard version of that, right? So uh, the, the Lord tells him, and, and this is from chapter 12. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so he tells him from the beginning that this purpose is bigger than him. That it's greater than just his family line even. Because he's telling him that he's going to do great things through him. But, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this extends beyond just his paternal line, this goes beyond his inheritance, which he's going to pass down, that this is bigger than his family line, that he's doing something great and enormous here. And so in chapter 12, he promptly obeys the Lord and we see some of his sojournings there and some of his shortcomings. And then we get to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, I mean, if you just turn a page or you might not even have to turn depending on uh, the size of your Bible or whatnot, you see God kind of, again, reaffirming and establishing, giving this covenant to Abraham, right? And he tell, or excuse me, uh, I'm going to do that a lot throughout this morning, the Abram, Abraham thing, because this is the very point where where that changes, so you just just bear with me in that, all right? So he, he tells Abram there in 15, fear not, I am your shield, which is just a complete uh, and new revelation. He says, I am the one who is going to guard and protect you. Why? For my purposes. Your reward shall be very great. And then in here, in this interaction, in chapter 15, we see Abram 
he, he asks questions. He, he converses with God and God reveals to him. And, he, and God, in, in verse 7 there in chapter 15, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And so he's brought him to that destination, that physical destination that's part of this, that's interwoven in this covenant. And he, and he gives this covenant here and he extends it. And Abram falls asleep and he sees a torch passing between these, uh, these pieces uh, of a smoking fire pot and all this is going on, and we get to chapter 17, our text this morning. So some 14 years have passed from that moment in chapter 12 when God announces the covenant, and then God gives the covenant, and this is the confirmation of the covenant. And here is what we see in chapter 17. And so uh, this moment between Abram, soon to be Abraham, and the Lord reveals to us the heart of God in the mission of the church. That's what I want us to see this morning, is that this moment between Abram, or as I said, soon to be Abraham in just a few verses, uh, is, is what reveals to us the heart of God in the mission of the church, okay? Because mission, the mission remains the same. All right, that's, what, that's what I want us to see throughout these next four weeks is that this mission that starts, that starts from God at the fall, really, but is pronounced here, remains the same throughout all of Scripture. It doesn't change. It doesn't alter. God's pronouncements here remain the same, and God makes that known, and we'll see that here in just a little bit. But pick back up again, verse 1. Let's read that again. Verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So this is the first time in the Pentateuch that the Lord uses this specific name for himself. So this name right here that he reveals of himself is I am God Almighty. That is El Shaddai, God Almighty. So throughout the Old Testament, you'll see varied uses of this title for God, right? God will use this title of God, and then it'll list an attribute of God. He'll, he'll use these titles for himself, or they'll be used uh, 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 to, to reflect and to worship God. And so you'll see the word El, that's, that, that's the God part of the title of El Shaddai, that's God. And then the Shaddai is the Almighty. So you'll see El followed by a term or phrase that emphasizes a particular attribute of God. And almost always, it's what God is doing in that moment in time. He wants to reveal that attribute of himself that will confirm and affirm that he is the one that is doing this, that this is how he is going to accomplish this. This is why he is acting in this way, because it's who he is, right? So therefore here, El Shaddai emphasizes God's omnipotence and sovereignty. Like he wants Abram here to know that he is God almighty. Every bit of might, every bit of power, he has it. That's him. So from here, this title for the Lord is used only five more times in Genesis. All right, so five more times in Genesis where God uses this title, and it's always followed by some incredible feat, incredible announcement. Now, for, for reference, again, this is emphasizing God's power 
and sovereignty. This, this title is used 31 times in the book of Job, right? And so we see there the importance of this character and this understanding of this title, that it's not just like God Almighty. Yes, okay, we know who is talking, right? But it's, it's revealing something about what he's doing and how he is going to accomplish this and why he is doing this. So why is that important? Consider the context of this interaction with Abram and God's interaction with Job also. The, the manner and the terms with which God introduces himself are in direct correlation with what God is communicating about himself. And that's what we see right here. But this isn't the only thing what God, which God includes in his address right here, this initial announcement to Abram. He introduces himself for the first time as God Almighty, and then he proceeds to give Abraham, Abram two instructions, right? And these instructions go hand in hand with one another. So you'll see that right there. I am God Almighty. So that's the introduction. Like, this is who is speaking. This is who's going to accomplish everything that I'm about to tell you. And this is a part of my innate being. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So we have two instructions there that come along with and go hand in hand with this pronouncement of who he is, right? This is an appropriate response to knowing God Almighty is to walk before him and be blameless. These commands are the only proper response for inferior humanity to the superior creator God who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, right? So you see there, walk before me. So this is the first command. This first command for Abram is to maintain personal relationship with the very God who brought him to the land, brought him from the land of his forefathers, and who is indeed almighty, has brought him this far, and is soon to promise him all that he is about to say. So that's the emphasis there of walk before me. Is this is a continuation. This is going forward in perpetuity. This is not something that is just happening here and now, a one-off event. But he says, walk before me. So that's, that's the, in, the indication there is the continuation of this relationship between God Almighty and Abram. Okay? And then the next uh, instruction there is, and be blameless. So within this challenge to Abram also lies God's purposes in calling Abram. He challenges Abram to walk in heartfelt covenant obedience because he is the God Almighty who can give him the strength to do so. He challenges Abram to walk in heartfelt covenant obedience because this is what he is purposing to do through Abram that is making the nations blameless before himself. And we're going to see that as we continue to unpack this. So he's, he's telling Abram, walk before me and be blameless. And as we'll see, he's getting ready to say that this is what he's doing in this covenant with Abram. But before we do that, I want to point out the first point on your outline there this morning is the motivation for missions flows from a heart of obedience. The motivation for missions flows from a heart of obedience. Because until we are moved by the person and purpose of God, because that's what's revealed here, is the person, God Almighty. And the purpose, 
Walk before me, be blameless. Until we're moved by the person and purpose of God, we will never truly be moved by the mission of God. I want us as as the church of God here at Southside to understand that, that until we are moved first and foremost by the person and purpose of God, we will never truly be moved by the mission of God because we must be compelled to glorify God as we walk before him, seeking his word for truth. And we must be so compelled that we can't help but obediently point others to God's glory. And that's the focus of missions. Not that our hearts are tender and that we're struck by the poverty that we see around the world or we're struck by what is going on here or there or everywhere. That's not our motivation for missions. Is that good motivation to see how God can redeem those situations and how he can bring hope to that brokenness? Absolutely. But the primary motivation for missions flows from a heart of obedience to God Almighty. And that's what I want us to see right here as we continue to move forward. What we believe about God and who we believe him to be motivates every factor of our lives, or at least it should. And in fact, even if for those who don't believe in God, it's that saying is true. What we believe about him, or for those that don't believe, what they don't believe about him motivates every factor of their lives. So there's, there's no in-between there. If we serve El Shaddai, God Almighty, how could we not be motivated to walk before him in complete obedience to what he has declared to be his purposes in the world? That's the challenge here. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. If we ever lower God's attributes below that of Almighty, our faith becomes neutralized, sterile, and stagnant. This is the point where we can become deceived to think that missions is just a suggestion, right? Is that if we lower God's attributes below that of Almighty, we can be deceived to think that missions, therefore, is just a suggestion. But when we realize that He is God Almighty and He has given a command to walk before Him and be blameless and He has made Himself known, He has made Himself known then missions is not at all a suggestion, but a command and a prompt for his people. But when we re- so when we realize that missions is predicated on us wholeheartedly seeking to walk in obedience with God Almighty, that changes everything. So we must approach missions from a holistic biblical perspective. When we see the Bible as God's grand narrative to redeem humanity for the purpose of glorifying himself, then we can begin to understand missions and our call to it. And this is so important because what we run the risk of engaging in, and I'm, I'm, I'm laying all this out now because it, it's going to lay the foundation for greater understanding as we move through the rest of the text, all right? This is so important because what we run the risk of engaging in, if we don't have those, those priorities right, if we're not moved and motivated out of a heart of obedience to God Almighty, and to make his glory known, then what we run the risk of doing is just humanistic, humanitarian charity work with a Christian facade, right? Because we just join all the other secular uh, humanitarian aids and, and all this different stuff that's good and it's, it's wholesome and it's, it's respectable work, but then we just 
slap a Bible verse on there, Matthew 28, right? And we just like, we, we feel better about ourselves. That's not at all what we want to do. So we'll go to another country, go to a different part of our country, or go do something in our own city, but the motivation can be totally self-centered and self-motivated and self-aggrandizing, right? So until we're motivated by the person and purpose of God Almighty, we aren't doing Christian mission. We're just doing secular charity work with a Christian facade, all right? So that's where we see as we continue to unpack this, these verses and this uh, interaction here between Abram and soon-to-be Abraham and God, we see, pick back up there, verse 2. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that, that's going to be an important little four-letter word there, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So again, let's, let's look back at the beginning there, that, okay? This little words like this help us tremendously when it comes to our ability to interpret and understand the meaning of Scripture in its own context. Because when we realize and pick up those little, little cues, that little that, this little word links us to the pronouncement. So God reveals Himself, introduces His name and character, and gives instruction on how to respond to that truth. And then He gives the stipulation. And he gives uh, the stipulation for the covenant is that because God is almighty, therefore, as long as Abram maintains a personal relationship and walks before him and is blameless in God's sight, God will make a personal covenant with him. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. So this, this stipulation of this covenant is that you are able to humbly Walk before me and maintain that relationship that I've called you to. So that is those instructions that he gives in that, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, are linked directly to this. That I may make my covenant between me and you. But then there's, there's more, right? Because when we have and, right? So wait, there's more. As part of this covenant... God is going to graciously and faithfully multiply Abram. Now, what does that mean? So if you take it at face value, which you should, this covenant is going to be generationally reproduced in perpetuity. Thus, we see God working to multiply his covenant relationship across Abram's descendants. That's what God is making known here is that this is not something that is just about you. But this is moving forward. Again, walk before me. This is this continuation. And then now that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So this covenant is not just for you, but this is moving forward into eternity. And this is where I want us to see that next point on your outline there is that the person and purpose of God reveal the mission of God. When you come to know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and realize the purpose of God's revealing himself is for his glory, then we can realize the mission which God has given his people. And that is to join him by making himself known, by walking obedience to his word and his sovereign purposes. 
But here's the thing, church. We can't know why Jesus is so good and why the gospel is such good news until we've come to know the person and purpose of God as he's revealed himself in his word, in its entirety. And so as God is uh, as affirming the covenant here with Abram, he introduces himself in a different way, gives a different title than he's introduced himself to Abram before. And he says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. That is, make more Abrams, right? So there's a more covenant relationship here. This is going on forward, that this isn't something that's just happening now, but it's moving into eternity here is the focus. And so we continue there with verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him. So I want us to pause right there in verse 3, because even though it kind of continues right into verse 4, because something happens here. The gest- this gesture by Abram is much more than just him being overwhelmed at the presence of God, which it very much is that, right? But it, but it goes beyond that. Rather, this is a wholehearted bodily assertion of who God is and what he has revealed to Abraham and an acknowledgement of God's glory in revealing himself in this way. And I'll call you to notice that this is the only communication from Abram in this part of the interaction. Abram doesn't speak until we get way down the line, uh, verse 17, Uh, And in fact, again, what we see is Abram falls on his face there, but then he laughs at what God says, right? Because God has told him at that point that the way he's going to fulfill this covenant is through Sarah, his wife. And he's like, no, she's too old kind of thing, right? So, um, So this is the only communication from Abram in this part of the covenant affirmation is that he falls on his face. So he doesn't speak. In that first, in that interaction in chapter 15, we saw some communication back and forth. But in this one, Abram is just brought to his knees, falls on his face before God. He doesn't speak until the Lord pronounces Sarah's role, right? So this posture of Abram is the only communication he needs. It's the only appropriate communication to both adore God's holiness and receive his role of obedience. Because this is an act of humility, saying that he is submitting himself to what God has said in this moment, right? And this is the only communication he has right here, is that he falls on his face at what God has just revealed. And this is the posture with which we must approach missions. Indeed, the posture for the entirety of the Christian life, really, is this same posture of Abram right here, on our face before the Lord, in submission to his word, in adoration of who he is. Abram is overwhelmed with humble adoration at God's grace to reveal himself in this way, to redeem him, to redeem Abram for God's own purposes, and he's overwhelmed at God's glory being made known in this situation. Our salvation is to be received by grace through faith and combined by walking before the Lord in newness of life. So this is our act of falling on our face before God. 
is walking in complete submission to what he has said and declared. Indeed, this is the posture that the Lord seeks to bring the nations to. We haven't unpacked it yet, but we're going to see it as we continue to unpack it. But that brings me to the next point there on your outline, which is that God's glory is the mission objective. God's glory is the mission objective. Any, any mission that has as its objective anything else outside of God's glory is not Christian missions. And that's what we need to understand. If we say we're going here and our goal is X, Y, Z, our vision for doing this is this, we hope to see this as an outcome and an output of doing all of this stuff. If God's glory isn't the focus and the center of all of that, then it's not expressly Christian mission and it's not the mission of the church. If we are not overwhelmed at the glory of God with humble adoration, we will not truly grasp Christian missions. If you're not overwhelmed at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then maybe the reason you can't quite grasp the idea of Christian missions is because you are the one whom God is still drawing to himself. And if that's you, I implore you to see how God has, is in here, as we continue to unpack this verse, has revealed himself and made it his purpose to redeem for himself a people, not of one nation, but of a multiplicity of nations, and to realize in your sinfulness now that he is drawing you in, calling you to himself to Respond just as Abram does here, falling on your face before him in full submission to who he is and in adoration of his glory. And church, this is our mission as his church, is to not only be in this posture, but to see the nations come to this posture of falling on our face before God at what He has revealed in His Word. And until we realize and have a great appreciation for our need for salvation, we will never be moved by the mission of God. And the emphasis there is our own salvation, right? Because we often think of missions and we start thinking of the salvation of others first. But what I want us to realize is that until we have a, just a complete, humble, uh, just grasp of our total need for salvation and that that came from outside of ourselves and that God provided that for us by His grace, and until we are just brought to our knees at that reality, we will never be moved by the mission of God and by Christian missions. And so sometimes I wonder if that is why the church has so often misused, abused, and, and, and mischaracterized missions and made it something that is not, or, or misunderstood missions, or why people often don't move uh, fervently when it comes to sign-up time for different missions opportunities that the Lord provides His church. Sometimes I wonder that if, if it's because of a lack of understanding of our own need for salvation. Is that sometimes we think that we have graduated past the gospel. When the gospel is the foundation of everything, we realize our sinfulness, our 
sinfulness before a holy God and how He has atoned for that in Christ, that is when we will be moved and motivated to move in obedience to missions. And this is the objective of Christian missions, that we have been so overwhelmed at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we cannot help but be compelled to obediently walk in His ways and make His name known. We move forward there, pick back up in verse 4, because this is, a, this is a crucial part here of this entire interaction. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of of nations. And so this is an important part, not just because the name finally changes, so I don't have to switch back and forth anymore, right? right? But there's a major shift here that we must take note of. So in verse 2, the Lord simply revealed to Abram that he would multiply him. And if we simply leave it to this, it would mean that the Lord is simply going to enlarge Abram's family. Right? And he said, I'm going to multiply you greatly. And so if we leave it at that, we, we could think that this is just a covenant that is in perpetuity with the line of Abraham. And some, I think, mistakenly look at that and, and, and twist it in some sorts of ways. But simply left to this, it would mean that the Lord is going to enlarge Abram's, Abraham's family, Abraham's territory, Abraham's heirs. However, here in verse 4 is, is the important shift. The Lord reveals in greater detail what He is setting about to do through Abraham. Because here the Lord reveals His redemptive purposes at work through His covenant with Abraham, right? So verse 4 there, we see, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So there we see that this exceeds outside the boundaries of Abraham's line. And in fact, this is in complete connection with what God has already said at the initial covenant announcement in chapter 12, right? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this isn't just for Abraham's line, but this this covenant extends beyond that, that God is glorifying Himself and seeking to glorify Himself in a multitude through, through Abraham to a multitude of nations. So this was not simply for the purpose of establishing Abraham as a large family, great inheritance and riches. This was for the purpose of God redeeming for Himself people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Everything else in the rest of the chapter is expounding upon what God reveals here in verse 4. That's why this verse is so crucial. Because everything else is just expounding upon what God just said right there in verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Everything else is God saying, here's how I'm going to do that. All right? So how could this be? How could he extend this beyond? How could he... A, yes, he's going to multiply Abram or Abraham now greatly. But how could this extend beyond him to a multitude of nations? So beyond his family line to drawing to himself, glorifying himself among a multiplicity of nations. How could it be? 
He is God Almighty. As we read in verse 5, we see that this is the basis for Abram's name change. So Abram, in Hebrew, translates exalted father. Right? So, in other words, if, it, if we stop at verse 2, and we just understand it as multiply you greatly, then there's no need for a name change. He can just remain Abram, right? Because he's an exalted father. Abraham translates to father of a multitude. So now every time Abraham hears his own name, he's reminded of El Shaddai's promise to multiply him, not simply for his own sake, that is Abraham's own sake, but for the Lord's purposes. And every time he hears his name, he's forced to think not of what he's accomplished for himself, Abraham, but what God has accomplished and is accomplishing for his namesake. There's a lot of different shifting there, but I had to, had to point just to explain it all. So this also references us back to Abraham's original call in Genesis 12, as I said, where God tells Abram, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this is showing that this covenant is the same things, the same pronouncement that he did in chapter 12. It's the same which he uh, acknowledged there in chapter 15. And now it's being confirmed and affirmed here in chapter 17. And it's in complete consistency. That in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. My covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of of nations. And this is the exact thing that Paul points the church at Rome to in Romans chapter 4. Keep your finger there in Genesis, but I'll encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 4 or it'll be on the screen for you. But in Romans chapter 4, Paul points to this covenant with Abraham, specifically in, in God's words there in Genesis 12 as the church's reason for hope. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. So the it there is the promise. Okay, so you start in verse 13, really. You see the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be that the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he's, he's just talking about the promise to Abraham. Right there, right? And so he said, that is why it depends on faith. So the it is the promise to Abraham. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. 
So Paul just had to throw in there like, hey, he was old at this point when God was giving him this promise. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, which makes him laugh just a few verses later. Verse 20, no unbelief made him, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Oh, okay. Verse 24. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the promises to Abraham that we're reading here, now we're back in Genesis 17. The promises to Abraham are the inheritance of all those who look and hope to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And this is what we point the world to marvel at. And this is why we're saying, because you might be to this point like, okay, I understand what you're saying as far as all explaining to Abraham, but still, how does this connect to missions? This is how. Jesus, Okay is that in Jesus, all the promises to Abraham are the inheritance of those who look to faith in Jesus. And this is what we point the world to marvel at. Jesus, the culmination of the purposes and promises of God. The multitude of nations promised to Father Abraham is the church. That's us. In Christ and through his church, God is reconciling the nations to himself in complete faithfulness to his covenant promises to Abraham. So notice the change in tense there too, because I think this is so cool. Notice the change in tense as God tells Abraham what he is doing in and through his life. So he first uses the future tense in verse 4. You shall be the father of many nations. So that means it is to come. It's, it's forward, right? You shall. Then God uses the present tense in verse 5 at Abraham's renaming. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. As if to say, this promise is as good as accomplished in the now. Again, why? Because he is El Shaddai, God Almighty. But what if Abraham messes up? Yeah, he does. And God Almighty shows his long-suffering, faithful kindness to sustain Abraham and then provides Christ. And that is Paul's point there. That as we look to Christ, we receive the promise of Abraham and God is remaining in covenant faithfulness to what he promised. And this is the added emphasis here that it is God Almighty who is accomplishing all of this. So again, notice Abraham's silence in all of this. It's because God is the one who's saying, here's what I am doing and here's what I will do. And this is where we need to realize the next point there on your outline. God's will directs Christian missions. So please understand this, that when we talk about our desire to go, our mandate to go, our vision for going, it is all predicated on this. God wills that we go. Nothing more. And when we talk about the motivation for missions, the direction of missions, or the goal for missions, it's all predicated on what God has ordained in His Word. And that is 
His name may be glorified among the nations. Missions is not about decide, us deciding where we will go, whether we will go here or there, riding into a third world country as the great white savior to say, here I am. The Americans are here, right? That's not what it was about. Missions is wholly directed by the will of God. Therefore, the people of God are simply to submit to God's will in this and walk in obedience to it. We who were once brought to faith because of God's redemptive purpose now have the command from God to join Him in that work. And this is just the great confounding nature of missions, is that we were the target of missions. We were the nations that needed to know. And now that we know, now He sends us to those who do not. And this is what compels us. This is what moves us outside of what makes us comfortable. This is what drives our ambition. God Almighty has revealed himself in his word and in the face of Jesus Christ that we may walk before him, having been declared blameless by the blood of Christ, that he may be made known in the hearts of those whom he is calling to himself. So when I hear missions naysayers say, why waste all that money to go around the world and do something that you could do next door? My answer is because God Almighty has willed that we do both. When I hear missions naysayers say, what's the point of missions if God already knows who he's going to save? My answer is because God Almighty has chosen those whom he has already saved to be the agents of his will in making the gospel known to those whom he is drawing to himself. And that this is how God has orchestrated his vehicle for taking the gospel to the nations. This is how God has orchestrated us as his church. Is that he has saved us so that we can walk in obedience to his will and he can be made known in the hearts of those who do not know. So when I hear all of this, I simply have to say it's because God Almighty is at work and has been to redeem for himself a people. As we continue to look there at verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So God's word to Abraham here echoes his command at creation to be fruitful and multiply. So God says, in this covenant, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. So I'm going to form you. I'm I'm the one that's doing this work here. And the kings, kings will come from you. So through this covenant, God would work to reverse the effects of the curse. And we, as fallen humanity, have no problem with attempting to exercise dominion over the earth. That's that's the part of, of the creation uh, commandment that we, we don't have a problem with exer- trying to exercise our dominion, right? But in our fallenness, all of these efforts are vain and fruitless because they're not God-honoring in our, in our flesh, right? But by God's working and willing, He will make Abraham fruitful so that this command, can these, these all things can be made new. And that brings me to the final point there on your outline, that missions is the continuation of God's redemptive 
purpose to make all things new. This is it, church. Missions is not a date on a calendar, an opportunity for a cool t-shirt, an opportunity for us to make ourselves feel better, give ourselves a pat on the back. The mission of the church is in continuation and complete consistency with God's redemptive purpose from the fall on. So when we talk about missions, when we look to missions, let us break ourselves of all the stereotypical modern distortions and let us look at missions as the undeserved opportunity for those who have been made new in Christ to join God's redemptive work of making all things new. Because as we see in our final few verses there, verses 7 through 9, Where you see, and I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. So God differentiates here. He says, this covenant is indeed for your heirs, for your offspring. But this is so much bigger than that. And so he goes on to describe how he's doing this. He's beginning this idea of multitude of nations. It starts with you, but it's going to be so much greater, so much larger than that. So church, let us break ourselves of those stereotypes and let us see God's redemptive purpose throughout the entire story of Scripture. And we will have a greater understanding and appreciation for our great commission as it walks in complete consistency and is in complete consistency with what God has been doing from the fall. Let's pray. God, we love you. I pray, Lord, right now, First, for us as a church, that as we seek your will for us and seek opportunities that you have provided us to be on mission for your name, pray that you would help us to have that posture of falling on our face before you in complete humble submission and complete adoration of who you are. Help us to walk in obedience. I pray that you would stir among us a culture and a heart for wanting to consistently and constantly be on mission for your glory in all that we do as a church. Secondly, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that maybe this morning they realize that they haven't truly grasped Christian missions because they haven't grasped their own need for salvation, that you would reveal that reality to them so clearly that you would help them to walk in obedience and submit to the work of Christ on the cross and be made new, that they too might be on mission for you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.